Chapter 41, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. As soon as the tumult had subsided, the several parts of the army informed each other of the accidents of the day, and Belisarius pitched his camp on the field of victory, to which the tenth milestone from Carthage had applied the Latin appellation of Decimus. From a wise suspicion of the stratagems and resources of the Vandals, he marched the next day in order of battle, halted in the evening before the gates of Carthage, and allowed a night of repose, that he might not in darkness and disorder expose the city to the license of the soldiers, or the soldiers themselves to the secret ambush of the city. But as the fears of Belisarius were the result of calm and intrepid reason, he was soon satisfied that he might confide, without danger, in the peaceful and friendly aspect of the capital. Carthage blazed, with innumerable torches, the signals of the public joy. The chain was removed that guarded the entrance of the port, the gates were thrown open, and the people with acclamations of gratitude hailed and invited their Roman deliverers. The defeat of the Vandals and the freedom of Africa were announced to the city on the eve of St. Cyprian, when the churches were already adorned and illuminated for the festival of the martyr, whom three centuries of superstition had almost raised to a local deity. The Arians, conscious that their reign had expired, resigned the temple to the Catholics, who rescued their saint from profane hands, performed the holy rites, and loudly proclaimed the creed of Athanasius and Justinian. One awful hour reversed the fortunes of the contending parties. The suppliant vandals, who had so lately indulged the vices of conquerors, sought an humble refuge in the sanctuary of the church, while the merchants of the east were delivered from the deepest dungeon of the palace by their affrighted keeper, who implored the protection of his captives, and showed them, through an aperture in the wall, the sails of the Roman fleet. After their separation from the army, the naval commanders had proceeded with slow caution along the coast till they reached the Hermian promontory and obtained the first intelligence of the victory of Belisarius. Faithful to his instructions, they would have cast anchor about twenty miles from Carthage, if the more skillful seamen had not represented the perils of the shore and the signs of an impending tempest. Still ignorant of the revolution, they declined, however, the rash attempt of forcing the chain in the port, and the adjacent harbor and suburb of Mandracium were insulted only by the rapine of a private officer, who disobeyed and deserted his leaders. But the imperial fleet, advancing with a fair wind, steered through the narrow entrance of the Goleta, and occupied in the deep and capacious lake of Tunis a secure station about five miles from the capital. No sooner was Belisarius informed of their arrival than he dispatched orders that the greatest part of the mariners should be immediately landed, and to join the triumph and to swell the apparent numbers of the Romans. Before he allowed them to enter the gates of Carthage, he exhorted them, in a discourse worthy of himself and the occasion, not to disgrace the glory of their arms, and to remember that the Vandals had been the tyrants, but that they were the deliverers of the Africans, who must now be respected as the voluntary and affectionate subjects of their common sovereign. The Romans marched through the streets in closed ranks, prepared for battle if an enemy had appeared. The strict order maintained by the general imprinted on their minds the duty of obedience, and in an age in which custom and impunity almost sanctified the abuse of conquest, the genius of one man, 
repressed the passions of a victorious army. The voice of menace and complaint was silent. The trade of Carthage was not interrupted. While Africa changed her master and her government, the shops continued open and busy, and the soldiers, after sufficient guards had been posted, modestly departed to the houses which were allotted for their reception. Belisarius fixed his residence in the palace, and seated himself on the throne of Genseric, accepted and distributed the barbaric spoil, granted their lives to the suppliant vandals, and labored to repair the damage which the suburb of Mandracium had sustained in the preceding night. At supper he entertained his principal officers with the form and magnificence of a royal banquet. The victor was respectfully served by the captive officers of the household, and in the moments of festivity, when the impartial spectators applauded the fortune and merit of Belisarius, his envious flatterers secretly shed their venom on every word and gesture which might alarm the suspicions of a jealous monarch. One day was given to these pompous scenes, which may not be despised as useless if they attracted the popular veneration. But the active mind of Belisarius, which, in the pride of victory, could suppose a defeat, had already resolved that the Roman Empire in Africa should not depend on the chances of arms or the favor of the people. The fortifications of Carthage had alone been exempted from the general prescription, but in the reign of ninety-five years they were suffered to decay by the thoughtless and indolent vandals. A wise conqueror restored, with incredible dispatch, the walls and ditches of the city. His liberality encouraged the workmen, the soldiers, the mariners, and the citizens vied with each other in the salutary labor, and Gelimer, who had feared to trust his person in an open town, beheld with astonishment and despair the rising strength of an impregnable fortress. That unfortunate monarch, after the loss of his capital, applied himself to collect the remains of an army scattered rather than destroyed by the preceding battle, and the hopes of pillage attracted some Moorish bands to the standard of Gelimer. He encamped in the fields of Bula, five days' distance from Carthage, insulted the capital, which he deprived of the use of an aqueduct, proposed a high reward for the head of every Roman, affected to spare the persons and property of his African subjects, and secretly negotiated with the Arian sectaries and the confederate Huns. Under these circumstances, the conquest of Sardinia served only to aggravate his distress. He reflected, with the deepest anguish, that he had wasted in that useless enterprise five thousand of his bravest troops, and he read, with grief and shame, the victorious letters of his brother Zano, who expressed a sanguine confidence that the king, after the example of their ancestors, had already chastised the rashness of the Roman invader. Alas, my brother, replied Gelimer, heaven has declared against our unhappy nation. While you have subdued Sardinia, we have lost Africa. No sooner did Belisarius appear with a handful of soldiers then courage and prosperity deserted the cause of the Vandals. Your nephew, Gibomund, your brother, Amatus, had been betrayed to death by the cowardice of their followers. Our horses, our ships, Carthage itself, and all Africa, are in the power of the enemy. Yet the Vandals still prefer an ignominious repose, at the expense of their wives and children, their wealth and liberty. Nothing now remains except the field of Bula, and the hope of your valor, Abandon Sardinia, fly to our relief, restore our empire, or perish by our side. At the receipt of this epistle, Zano imparted his grief to the principal vandals, but the intelligence was prudently concealed from the natives of the island. 
the troops embarked in one hundred and twenty galleys at the port of Cagliari, cast anchor the third day on the confines of Mauritania, and hastily pursued their march to join the royal standards in the camp of Abula. Mournful was the interview. The two brothers embraced. They wept in silence. No questions were asked of the Sardinian victory. No inquiries were made of the African misfortunes. They saw before their eyes the whole extent of their calamities, and the absence of their wives and children afforded a melancholy proof that either death or captivity had been their lot. The languid spirit of the Vandals was at length awakened and united by the entreaties of their king, the example of Zano, and the instant danger which threatened their monarchy and religion. The military strength of the nation advanced to battle, and such was the rapid increase that, before their army reached Tricameron, about twenty miles from Carthage, they might boast, perhaps with some exaggeration, that they surpassed in a tenfold proportion the diminutive power of the Romans. But these powers were under the command of Belisarius, and, as he was conscious of their superior merit, he permitted the barbarians to surprise him at an unseasonable hour. The Romans were instantly under arms. A rivulet covered their front. A cavalry formed the first line, which Belisarius supported in the center at the head of five hundred guards. The infantry, at some distance, was posted in the second line, and the vigilance of the general watched the separate station and ambiguous faith of the Massagetae, who secretly reserved their aid for the conquerors. The historian has inserted, and the reader might easily supply, the speeches of the commanders, who, by arguments the most apposite of their situation, inculcated the importance of victory and contempt of life. Zano, with the troops which had followed him to the conquest of Sardinia, was placed in the center, and the throne of Genseric might have stood, if the multitude of Vandals had imitated their intrepid resolution. Casting away their lances and missile weapons, they drew their swords and expected the charge. The Roman cavalry thrice passed the rivulet, they were thrice repulsed, and the conflict was firmly maintained till Zano fell and the standard of Belisarius was displayed. Gelimer retreated to his camp, the Huns joined the pursuit, and the victors despoiled the bodies of the slain. Yet no more than fifty Romans and eight hundred Vandals were found on the field of battle. So inconsiderable was the carnage of the day which extinguished a nation and transferred the empire of Africa. In the evening, Belisarius led his infantry to the attack of the camp, and the pusillanimous flight of Gelimer exposed the vanity of his recent declarations, that to the vanquished death was a relief, life a burden, and infamy the only object of terror. His departure was secret, but as soon as the Vandals discovered that their king had deserted them, they hastily dispersed, anxious only for their personal safety, and careless of every object that is dear or valuable to mankind. The Romans entered the camp without resistance, and the wildest scenes of disorder were veiled in the darkness and confusion of the night. Every barbarian who met their swords was inhumanly massacred. Their widows and daughters, as rich heirs or beautiful concubines, were embraced by the licentious soldiers, and avarice itself was almost satiated with the treasures of gold and silver, the accumulated fruits of conquest or economy, and a long period of prosperity and peace. In this frantic station, the troops, even of Belisarius, forgot their caution and respect. Intoxicated with lust and rapine, in small parties or alone, the adjacent fields, the woods, the rocks, and the caverns which might possibly conceal any desirable prize laden with booty, 
they deserted their ranks, and wandered, without a guide, on the high road to Carthage. And if the flying enemies had dared to return, very few of the conquerors would have escaped. Deeply sensible of the disgrace and danger, Belisarius passed an apprehensive night on the field of victory. At the dawn of day he planted his standard on a hill, recalled his guards and veterans, and gradually restored the modesty and obedience of the camp. It was equally the concern of the Roman general to subdue the hostile and to save the prostate barbarian. And the suppliant vandals, who could be found only in churches, were protected by his authority, disarmed and separately confined, that they might neither disturb the public peace nor become the victims of popular revenge. After dispatching a light detachment to tread the footsteps of Gelimer, he advanced with his whole army, about ten days' march, as far as Hippo Regius, which no longer possessed the relics of St. Augustine. The season, and the certain intelligence that the Vandals had fled to the inaccessible country of the Moors, determined Belisarius to relinquish the vain pursuit, and to fix his winter quarters at Carthage. From thence he dispatched his principal lieutenant to inform the emperor that in the space of three months he had achieved the conquest of Africa. Belisarius spoke the language of truth. The surviving Vandals yielded, without resistance, their arms and their freedom. The neighborhood of Carthage submitted to his presence, and the more distant provinces were successively subdued by the report of his victory. Tripoli was confirmed in her voluntary allegiance. Sardinia and Corsica surrendered to an officer, who carried, instead of a sword, the head of the valiant Zano, and the isles of Majorca, Minorca, and Yivica consented to remain in humble appendage of the African kingdom. Caesarea, a royal city which in looser geography may be confounded with the modern Algiers, was situate thirty days' march to the westward of Carthage. By land the road was infested by moors, but the sea was open, and the Romans were now masters of the sea. An active and discreet tribune sailed as far as the straits, where he occupied Septum, or Ketua, which rises opposite to Gibraltar on the African coast. That remote place was afterwards adorned and fortified by Justinian, and he seems to have indulged the vain ambition of extending his empire to the columns of Hercules. He received the messengers of victory at the time when he was preparing to publish the Pandex of the Roman law, and the devout or jealous emperor celebrated the divine goodness and confessed in silence the merit of his successful general. Impatient to abolish the temporal and spiritual tyranny of the Vandals, he proceeded without delay to the full establishment of the Catholic Church. Her jurisdiction, wealth, and immunities, perhaps the most essential part of Episcopal religion, were restored and amplified with a liberal hand. The Arian worship was suppressed, the Donatist meetings were proscribed, and the Synod of Carthage, by the voice of 217 bishops, applauded the just measure of pious retaliation. On such an occasion, it may not be presumed that many orthodox prelates were absent, but the comparative smallness of their number, which in ancient councils had been twice or even thrice multiplied, most clearly indicates the decay both of the church and state. He entertained an ambitious hope that his victorious lieutenant would speedily enlarge the narrow limits of his dominion to the space which they occupied before the invasion of the Moors and Vandals, and Belisarius was instructed to establish five dukes, or commanders, in the convenient stations of Tripoli, Leptis, Cirta, Caesarea, and Sardinia, and to compute the military force of Palatines, or borderers, 
that might be sufficient for the defense of Africa. The kingdom of the Vandals was not unworthy of the presence of a praetorian prefect, and four councillors, three presidents, were appointed to administer the seven provinces under his civil jurisdiction. The number of their subordinate officers, clerks, messengers, or assistants, was minutely expressed. Three hundred and ninety-six for the prefect himself, fifty for each of his vice-regents, and the rigid definition of their fees and salaries was more effectual to confirm the right than to prevent the abuse. These magistrates might be oppressive, but they were not idle, and the subtle questions of justice and revenue were infinitely propagated under the new government, which professed to revive the freedom and equity of the Roman Republic. The conqueror was solicitous to extract a prompt and plentiful supply from his African subjects, and he allowed them to claim, even in the third degree and from the collateral line, the houses and lands of which their families had been unjustly despoiled by the Vandals. After the departure of Belisarius, who acted by a high and special commission, no ordinary provision was made for a master-general of the forces, but the office of Praetorian Prefect was entrusted to a soldier. The civil and military powers were united, according to the practice of Justinian and the chief governor, and the representative of the emperor in Africa, as well as in Italy, was soon distinguished by the appellation of Exarch. Yet the conquest of Africa was imperfect, till her former sovereign was delivered, either dead or alive, into the hands of the Romans. Doubtful of the event, Gelimer had given secret orders that a part of his treasure should be transported to Spain, where he hoped to find a secure refuge at the court of the king of the Visigoths. But these intentions were disappointed by accident, treachery, and the indefatigable pursuit of his enemies, who intercepted his flight from the seashore, and chased the unfortunate monarch, with some faithful followers, to the inaccessible mountain of Papua, in the inland country of Numidia. He was immediately besieged by Pharis, an officer whose truth and sobriety were the more applauded, as such qualities could seldom be found among the Heruli, the most corrupt of the barbarian tribes. To his vigilance Belisarius had entrusted this important charge, and after a bold attempt to scale the mountain, in which he lost an hundred and ten soldiers, Pharis expected, during a winter siege, the operation of distress and famine on the mind of the Vandal king. From the softest habits of pleasure, from the unbounded command of industry and wealth, he was reduced to share the poverty of the Moors, supportable to themselves only by the ignorance of a happier condition. In their rude hovels of mud and hurdles, which confined the smoke and excluded the light, they promiscuously slept on the ground, perhaps on a sheepskin, with their wives, their children, and their cattle. Sordid and scanty were their garments. The use of bread and wine was unknown and their oaten or barley cakes, imperfectly baked in the ashes, were devoured almost in a crude state by the hungry savages. The health of Gelimer must have sunk under these strange and unwanted hardships, from whatsoever cause they had been endured, but his actual misery was embittered by the recollections of past greatness, the daily insolence of his protectors, and the just apprehension that the light and venal moors might be tempted to betray the rights of hospitality. The knowledge of his situation dictated the humane and friendly epistle of Pharis. Like yourself, said the chief of the Heruli, I am an illiterate barbarian, but I speak the language of plain sense and an honest heart. 
Why will you persist in hopeless obstinacy? Why will you ruin yourself, your family, and nation? The love of freedom and abhorrence of slavery? Alas, my dear Gallimer, are you not already the worst of slaves, the slaves of the vile nation of the Moors? Would it not be preferable to sustain at Constantinople a life of poverty and servitude, rather than to reign the undoubted monarch of the mountain of Papua? Do you think it is a disgrace to be the subject of Justinian? Belisarius is his subject, and we ourselves, whose birth is not inferior to your own, are not ashamed of our obedience to the Roman emperor. That generous prince will grant you a rich inheritance of lands, a place in the senate, and the dignity of patrician. Such are his gracious intentions, and you may depend with full assurance on the word of Belisarius. As long as heaven has condemned us to suffer, patience is a virtue. But if we reject the proffered deliverance, it degenerates into a blind and stupid despair. I am not insensible, replied the king of the Vandals. How kind and rational is your advice! But I cannot persuade myself to become the slave of an unjust enemy, who has deserved my implacable hatred. Him I had never injured either by word or deed, yet he has sent against me, I know not from when, a certain Belisarius, who has cast me headlong from the throne into this abyss of mystery. Justinian is a man. He is a prince. Does he not dread for himself a similar reverse of fortune? I can write no more. My grief oppresses me. Send me, I beseech you, my dear Pharis. Send me a liar, a sponge, and a loaf of bread. From the Vandal messenger, Pharis was informed of the motives of this singular request. It was long since the king of Africa had tasted bread. A deflexion had fallen on his eyes, the effect of fatigue or incessant weeping, and he wished to solace the melancholy hours by singing to the lyre the sad story of his own sad misfortunes. The humanity of Pharis was moved. He sent the three extraordinary gifts, but even his humanity prompted him to redouble the vigilance of his guard, that he might sooner compel his prisoner to embrace a resolution advantageous to the Romans, but salutary to himself. The obstinacy of Gelimer at length yielded to reason and necessity. The solemn assurances of safety and honorable treatment were ratified in the emperor's name by the ambassador of Belisarius, and the king of the Vandals descended from the mountain. The first public interview was in one of the suburbs of Carthage, and when the royal captive accosted his conqueror, he burst into a fit of laughter. The crowd might naturally believe that extreme grief had deprived Gelimer of his senses. But in this mournful state, unseasonable mirth insinuated to more intelligent observers that the vain and transient senses of human greatness are unworthy of a serious thought. Their contempt was soon justified by a new example of a vulgar truth, that flattery adheres to power and envy to superior merit. The chiefs of the Roman army presumed to think themselves the rivals of a hero. Their private dispatches maliciously affirmed that the conqueror of Africa, strong in his reputation and the public love, conspired to seat himself on the throne of the Vandals. Justinian listened with too patient an ear, and a silence was the result of jealousy rather than of confidence. An honorable alternative, of remaining in the province or of returning to the capital, was indeed submitted to the discretion of Belisarius. But he wisely concluded, from intercepted letters and the knowledge of his sovereign's temper, that he must either resign his head, erect his standard, 
or confound his enemies by his presence and submission. Innocence and courage decided his choice. His guards, captives, and treasures were diligently embarked, and so prosperous was the navigation that his arrival at Constantinople preceded any certain account of his departure from the port of Carthage. Such unsuspecting loyalty removed the apprehensions of Justinian. Envy was silenced and inflamed by the public gratitude, and the third Africanus obtained the honors of a triumph, a ceremony which the city of Constantine had never seen, in which ancient Rome, since the reign of Tiberius, had reserved for the auspicious arms of the Caesars. From the palace of Belisarius, the procession was conducted through the principal streets to the Hippodrome, and this memorable day seemed to avenge the injuries of Genseric and to expiate the shame of the Romans. The wealth of nations was displayed, the trophies of martial or effeminate luxury, rich armor, golden thrones, and the chariots of state which had been used by the Vandal Queen, the massy furniture of the royal banquet, the splendor of precious stones, the elegant forms of statues and vases, the more substantial treasure of gold, and the holy vessels of the Jewish temple, which, after their long peregrination, were respectively deposited in the Christian church of Jerusalem. A long train of the noblest vandals reluctantly exposed their lofty stature and manly countenance. Gelimer slowly advanced. He was clad in a purple robe, and still maintained the majesty of a king. Not a tear escaped his eyes, not a sigh was heard. But his pride, or piety, derived some secret consolation from the words of Solomon, which he repeatedly pronounced, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Instead of ascending a triumphal car drawn by four horses or elephants, the modest conqueror marched on foot at the head of his brave companions. His prudence might decline an honor too conspicuous for a subject, and his magnanimity might justly disdain what had been so often sullied by the vilest of tyrants. The glorious procession entered the gate of the Hippodrome, was saluted by the acclamations of the Senate and people, and halted before the throne where Justinian and Theodora were seated to receive the homage of the captive monarch and the victorious hero. They both performed the customary adoration, and falling prostrate on the ground, respectfully touched the footstool of a prince who had not unsheathed his sword, and of a prostitute who had danced on the theater. Some gentle violence was used to bend the stubborn spirit of the grandson of Genseric, and however trained to servitude, the genius of Belisarius must have secretly rebelled. He was immediately declared consul for the ensuing year, and the day of his inauguration resembled the pomp of a second triumph. His curile chair was borne aloft on the soldiers of captive vandals, and the spoils of war, gold cups and rich girdles, were profusely scattered among the populace. End of chapter 41, part 2